Section 9 of Jean-Christophe, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joshua Seeger in Chicago. Jean-Christophe, Volume 1, by Romain Roland, translated by Gilbert Canaan. Dawn 3, Part 3. Jean-Christophe went home bewildered by his happiness. The stones danced about him. The reception he had from his family sobered him a little. When he blurted out the splendor of his musical exploit, they cried out upon him. His mother laughed at him. Melchior declared that the old man was mad, and that he would do better to take care of himself than to set about turning the boy's head. As for Jean-Christophe, he would oblige by putting such follies from his mind, and sitting down illico at the piano and playing exercises for four hours. He must first learn to play properly, and as for composing, there was plenty of time for that later on, when he had nothing better to do. Melchior was not, as these words of wisdom might indicate, trying to keep the boy from the dangerous exultation of a too early pride. On the contrary, he proved immediately that this was not so, but never having himself had any idea to express in music, and never having had the least need to express an idea, he had come, as a virtuoso, to consider composing a secondary matter, which was only given value by the art of the executant. He was not insensible of the tremendous enthusiasm roused by great composers like Hassler, for such ovations he had the respect which he always paid to success, mingled, perhaps, with a little secret jealousy, for it seemed to him that such applause was stolen from him. But he knew by experience that the successes of the great virtuosi are no less remarkable, and are more personal in character, and therefore more fruitful of agreeable and flattering consequences he affected to pay profound homage to the genius of the master musicians, but he took a great delight in telling absurd anecdotes of them, presenting their intelligence and morals in a lamentable light. He placed the virtuoso at the top of the artistic ladder, for, he said, it is well known that the tongue is the noblest member of the body, and what would thought be without words? What would music be without the executant? But whatever may have been the reason for the scolding that he gave Jean-Christophe, it was not without its uses in restoring some common sense to the boy, who was almost beside himself with his grandfather's praises. It was not quite enough. Jean-Christophe, of course, decided that his grandfather was much cleverer than his father, and though he sat down at the piano without sulking, he did so not so much for the sake of obedience as to be able to dream in peace, as he always did while his fingers ran mechanically over the keyboard. While he played his interminable exercises, he heard a proud voice inside himself saying over and over again, I am a composer, a great composer. From that day on, since he was a composer, he set himself to composing. Before he had even learned to write, he continued to cipher crotchets and quavers on scraps of paper, which he tore from the household account books. But in the effort to find out what he was thinking, and to set it down in black and white, 
he arrived at thinking nothing, except when he wanted to think something. But he did not for that give up making musical phrases, and as he was a born musician, he made them somehow, even if they meant nothing at all. Then he would take them in triumph to his grandfather, who wept with joy over them. He wept easily now that he was growing old, and vowed that they were wonderful. All this was like to spoil him altogether. Fortunately, his own good sense saved him, helped by the influence of a man who made no pretension of having any influence over anybody, and set nothing before the eyes of the world but a common-sense point of view. This man was Louisa's brother. Like her, he was small, thin, puny, and rather round-shouldered. No one knew exactly how old he was. He could not be more than forty, but he looked more than fifty. He had a little wrinkled face, with a pink complexion and kind, pale blue eyes, like faded forget-me-nots. When he took off his cap, which he used fussily to wear everywhere from his fear of draughts, he exposed a little pink bald head, conical in shape, which was the great delight of Jean Christophe and his brothers. They never left off teasing him about it, asking him what he had done with his hair, and encouraged by Melchior's pleasantries, threatening to smack it. He was the first to laugh at them, and put up with their treatment of him patiently. He was a peddler. He used to go from village to village with a pack on his back, containing everything, groceries, stationery, confectionery, handkerchiefs, scarves, shoes, pickles, almanacs, songs, and drugs. Several attempts had been made to make him settle down, and to buy him a little business, a store, or a drapery shop, but he could not do it. One night he would get up, push the key under the door, and set off again with his pack. Weeks and months went by before he was seen again. Then he would reappear. Some evening they would hear him fumbling at the door. It would half open, and the little bald head, politely uncovered, would appear with its kind eyes and timid smile. He would say, "'Good evening, everybody,' carefully wipe his shoes before entering, salute everybody, beginning with the eldest, and go and sit in the most remote corner of the room. There he would light his pipe and sit huddled up, waiting quietly until the usual storm of questions was over. The two crafts, Jean-Christophe's father and grandfather, had a jeering contempt for him. The little freak seemed ridiculous to them, and their pride was touched by the low degree of the peddler. They made him feel it. But he seemed to take no notice of it, and showed them a profound respect which disarmed them, especially the old man, who was very sensitive to what people thought of him. They used to crush him with heavy pleasantries, which often brought the blush to Louise's cheeks. Accustomed to bow without dispute to the intellectual superiority of the crafts, she had no doubt that her husband and father-in-law were right. But she loved her brother, and her brother had for her a dumb adoration. They were the only members of their family, and they were both humble, crushed, and thrust aside by life. They were united in sadness and tenderness by a bond of mutual pity and common suffering, born in secret. With the crafts, robust, noisy, brutal, solidly built for living and living joyously, these two weak, kindly creatures, out of their setting, so to speak, outside life, understood and pitied each other 
without ever saying anything about it. Jean Christophe, with the cruel carelessness of childhood, shared the contempt of his father and grandfather for the little peddler. He made fun of him, and treated him as a comic figure. He worried him with stupid teasing, which his uncle bore with his unshakable phlegm. But Jean Christophe loved him, without quite knowing why. He loved him first of all as a plaything with which he did what he liked. He loved him also because he always gave him something nice, a dainty, a picture, an amusing toy. The little man's return was a joy for the children, for he always had some surprise for them. Poor as he was, he always contrived to bring them each a present, and he never forgot the birthday of any one of the family. He always turned up on these august days, and brought out of his pocket some jolly present lovingly chosen. They were so used to it that they hardly thought of thanking him. It seemed natural, and he appeared to be sufficiently repaid by the pleasure he had given. But Jean Christophe, who did not sleep very well, and during the night used to turn over in his mind the events of the day, used sometimes to think that his uncle was very kind, and he used to be filled with floods of gratitude to the poor man. He never showed it when the day came, because he thought that the others would laugh at him. Besides, he was too little to see in kindness all the rare value that it has. In the language of children, kind and stupid are almost synonymous, and Uncle Gottfried seemed to be the living proof of it. One evening, when Melchior was dining out, Gottfried was left alone in the living room, while Louisa put the children to bed. He went out and sat by the river a few yards away from the house. Jean Christophe, having nothing better to do, followed him, and as usual tormented him with his puppy tricks until he was out of breath and dropped down on the grass at his feet. Lying on his belly, he buried his nose in the turf. When he had recovered his breath, he cast about for some new crazy thing to say. When he found it, he shouted it out and rolled about with laughing, with his face still buried in the earth. He received no answer. Surprised by the silence, he raised his head and began to repeat his joke. He saw Gottfried's face, lit up by the last beams of the setting sun cast through golden mists. He swallowed down his words. Gottfried smiled with his eyes half-closed and his mouth half-open, and in his sorrowful face was an expression of sadness and unutterable melancholy. Jean Christophe, with his face in his hands, watched him. The night came. Little by little Gottfried's face disappeared. Silence reigned. Jean Christophe, in his turn, was filled with the mysterious impressions which had been reflected on Gottfried's face. He fell into a vague stupor. The earth was in darkness, the sky was bright, the stars peeped out. The little waves of the river chattered against the bank. The boy grew sleepy. Without seeing them, he bit off little blades of grass. A grasshopper chirped near him. It seemed to him that he was going to sleep. Suddenly in the dark, Gottfried began to sing. He sang in a weak, husky voice, as though to himself. He could not have been heard twenty yards away. But there was sincerity and emotion in his voice. It was as though he were thinking aloud, and that through the song, as through clear water, the very inmost heart of him was to be seen. Never had John Christophe heard such singing, and never had he heard such a song. Slow, simple, childish, 
it moved gravely, sadly, a little monotonously, never hurrying, with long pauses, then setting out again on its way, careless where it arrived, and losing itself in the night. It seemed to come from far away, and it went no man knows whither. Its serenity was full of sorrow, and beneath its seeming peace there dwelt an agony of the ages. Jean Christophe held his breath. He dared not move. He was cold with emotion. When it was done, he crawled towards Gottfried, and in a choking voice said, Uncle? Gottfried did not reply. Uncle? repeated the boy, placing his hands and chin on Gottfried's knees. Gottfried said kindly, "'Well, boy, what is it, uncle? Tell me, what were you singing?' "'I don't know. Tell me what it is.' "'I don't know. Just a song.' "'A song that you made?' "'No, not I. What an idea. It is an old song.' "'Who made it?' "'No one knows.' "'When?' "'No one knows. When you were little?' Before I was born, before my father was born, and before his father, and before his father's father, it has always been. How strange! No one has ever told me about it. He thought for a moment. Uncle, do you know any other? Yes. Sing another, please. Why should I sing another? One is enough. One sings when one wants to sing when one has to sing. One must not sing for the fun of it. But what about when one makes music? That is not music. The boy was lost in thought. He did not quite understand. But he asked for no explanation. It was true. It was not music. Not like all the rest. He went on. Uncle, have you ever made them? Made what? Songs. Songs? Oh, how should I make them? They cannot be made. With his usual logic, the boy insisted. But, uncle, it must have been made once. Gottfried shook his head obstinately. It has always been. The boy returned to the attack. But, uncle, isn't it possible to make other songs? New songs? Why make them? There are enough for everything. There are songs for when you are sad and for when you are gay, for when you are weary and for when you are thinking of home, for when you despise yourself because you have been a vile sinner, a worm upon the earth, for when you want to weep because people have not been kind to you, and for when your heart is glad because the world is beautiful and you see God's heaven, which, like him, is always kind and seems to laugh at you. There are songs for everything, everything. Why should I make them? To be a great man, said the boy, full of his grandfather's teaching and his simple dreams. Gottfried laughed softly. Jean Christophe, a little hurt, asked him. Why are you laughing? Gottfried said. Oh, I, I am nobody. He kissed the boy's head and said, You want to be a great man? Yes, said Jean Christophe proudly. He thought Godfried would admire him. But Godfried replied, What for? Jean Christophe was taken aback. He thought for a moment and said, To make 
beautiful songs. Gottfried laughed again and said, You want to make beautiful songs so as to be a great man, and you want to be a great man so as to make beautiful songs. You are like a dog chasing its own tail. Jean-Christophe was dashed. At any other time he would not have borne his uncle laughing at him, he at whom he was used to laughing, and at the same time he would never have thought Gottfried clever enough to stump him with an argument. He cast about for some answer or some impertinence to throw at him, but could find none. Gottfried went on. When you are as great as from here to Koblenz, you will never make a single song. Jean-Christophe revolted on that. And if I will? The more you want to, the less you can. To make songs, you have to be like those creatures. Listen. The moon had risen, round and gleaming behind the fields. A silvery mist hovered above the ground and the shimmering waters. The frogs croaked, and in the meadows the melodious fluting of the toads arose. The shrill tremolo of the grasshoppers seemed to answer the twinkling of the stars. The wind rustled softly in the branches of the alders. From the hills above the river there came down the sweet light song of a nightingale. "'What need is there to sing?' sighed Gottfried after a long silence. It was not clear whether he were talking to himself or to Jean-Christophe. "'Don't they sing sweeter than anything that you could make?' Jean-Christophe had often heard these sounds of the night, and he loved them, but never had he heard them as he heard them now. It was true. What need was there to sing? His heart was full of tenderness and sorrow. He was fain to embrace the meadows, the river, the sky, the clear stars. He was filled with love for his uncle Gottfried, who seemed to him now the best, the cleverest, the most beautiful of men. He thought how he had misjudged him, and he thought that his uncle was sad because he, Jean-Christophe, had misjudged him. He was remorseful. He wanted to cry out, "'Uncle, do not be sad. I will not be naughty again.' forgive me, I love you. But he dared not, and suddenly he threw himself into Gottfried's arms, but the words would not come. Only he repeated, I love you, and kissed him passionately. Gottfried was surprised and touched, and went on saying, What? What? And kissed him. Then he got up, took him by the hand, and said, We must go in. Jean-Christophe was sad, because his uncle had not understood him. But as they came to the house, Gottfried said, If you like, we'll go again to hear God's music, and I will sing you some more songs. And when Jean-Christophe kissed him gratefully as they said good night, he saw that his uncle had understood. Together they often went for walks together in the evening, and they walked without a word along by the river or through the fields. Gottfried slowly smoked his pipe, and Jean-Christophe, a little frightened by the darkness, would give him his hand. They would sit down on the grass, and after a few moments of silence, Gottfried would talk to him about the stars and the clouds. He taught him to distinguish the breathing of the earth, air, and water, the songs, cries, and sounds of the little worlds of flying, creeping, hopping, and swimming things swarming in the darkness, and the signs of rain and fine weather, and the countless instruments of the symphony of the night. 
Sometimes Gottfried would sing tunes, sad or gay, but always of the same kind, and always, in the end, Jean-Christophe would be brought to the same sorrow. But he would never sing more than one song in an evening, and Jean-Christophe noticed that he did not sing gladly when he was asked to do so. It had to come of itself, just when he wanted to. Sometimes they had to wait for a long time without speaking, and just when Jean-Christophe was beginning to think, "'He is not going to sing this evening,' Gottfried would make up his mind. One evening, when nothing would induce Gottfried to sing, Jean-Christophe thought of submitting to him one of his own small compositions, in the making of which he found so much trouble and pride. He wanted to show what an artist he was. Gottfried listened very quietly, and then said, "'That is very ugly, my poor Jean-Christophe.' Jean-Christophe was so hurt that he could find nothing to say. Gottfried went on, pityingly, "'Why did you do it? It is so ugly. No one forced you to do it.' Hot with anger, Jean-Christophe protested, "'My grandfather thinks my music fine.' "'Ah,' said Gottfried, not turning a hair, "'no doubt he is right. He is a learned man. He knows all about music.' I know nothing about it. And after a moment, But I think that is very ugly. He looked quietly at Jean Christophe and saw his angry face, and smiled, and said, Have you composed any others? Perhaps I shall like the others better than that. Jean Christophe thought that his other compositions might wipe out the impression of the first, and he sang them all. Gottfried said nothing. He waited until they were finished. Then he shook his head, and with profound conviction said, "'They are even more ugly.' Jean-Christophe shut his lips, and his chin trembled. He wanted to cry. Gottfried went on as though he himself were upset. "'How ugly they are!' Jean-Christophe, with tears in his voice, cried out, "'But why do you say they are ugly?' Gottfried looked at him with his frank eyes. "'Why? I don't know.' Wait, they are ugly. First, because they are stupid. Yes, that's it. They are stupid. They don't mean anything. You see, when you wrote, you had nothing to say. Why did you write them? I don't know, said Jean-Christophe in a piteous voice. I wanted to write something pretty. There you are. You wrote for the sake of writing. You wrote because you wanted to be a great musician and to be admired. You have been proud. You have been a liar. You have been punished. You see, a man is always punished when he is proud and a liar in music. Music must be modest and sincere, or else what is it? Impious, a blasphemy of the Lord, who has given us song to tell the honest truth. He saw the boy's distress and tried to kiss him, but Jean Christophe turned angrily away, and for several days he sulked. He hated Gottfried, but it was in vain that he said over and over to himself, He is an ass. He knows nothing, nothing. My grandfather, who is much cleverer, likes my music. In his heart he knew that his uncle was right, and Gottfried's words were graven on his inmost soul. He was ashamed to have been a liar, and in spite of his resentment, he always thought of it when he was writing music, and often he tore up what he had written.
being ashamed already of what Gottfried would have thought of it. When he got over it, and wrote a melody which he knew to be not quite sincere, he hid it carefully from his uncle. He was fearful of his judgment, and was quite happy when Godfrey just said of one of his pieces, "'That is not so very ugly. I like it.' Sometimes, by way of revenge, he used to trick him by giving him as his own melodies from the great musicians, and he was delighted when it happened that Godfrey disliked them heartily. But that did not trouble Godfrey. He would laugh loudly when he saw Jean-Christophe clap his hands and dance about him delightedly, and he always returned to his usual argument. It is well enough written, but it says nothing. He always refused to be present at one of the little concerts given in Melchior's house. However beautiful the music might be, he would begin to yawn and look sleepy with boredom. Very soon he would be unable to bear it any longer, and he would steal away quietly. He used to say, "'You see, my boy, everything that you write in the house is not music. Music in a house is like sunshine in a room. Music is to be found outside, where you breathe God's dear fresh air.' He was always talking of God, for he was very pious, unlike the two crafts, father and son, who were free thinkers, and took care to eat meat on Fridays.' End of section 9